0: This has to be my favorite interview so far. Uh, it is with Paul Catty, who is a special makeup effects artist. He's worked on films like The Wolverine, Matrix, Babe, Charlotte's Web, The Hobbit, Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian, um, Pirates of the Caribbean, Cut, Needle. Oh, I could just keep going on. He's, he's done so many great movies and a lot of that quality is because of the work that he's done in those movies. So we get to talking about many different things. Uh, he shares a lot of different insight and uh, his his creative um, background as well, how he got started in the industry. So I know you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. Uh, so I do have to tell you as well that we went for about an hour and 20 minutes or so and around that time my mic unfortunately well, his mic actually cut out, but I did have a backup recorder, which is on my phone. So I've managed to switch the last four minutes. Um, and during the interview as well, there's a little bit of a bumping noise of the microphone. So I do apologize for that as well. Okay, with that being said, I now welcome Paul Caddy.
1: Hi, my name is Paul Caddy. I run a company called Makeup Effects Group. Uh, we're based in Sydney and we do creature and special makeup effects full motion pictures and film and TV, advertising, theatre, anything really. Um, we also do model making, costume props, um, animatronic, creatures, puppets, a whole range of different um, disciplines, uh, model making. Uh, model making. Um, and we've been going for about 35 years and, yeah, currently just finished a movie called Necrotronic which came out a couple of months ago and been doing uh, some stuff for Mortal Kombat and Titus Andronicus, which is a Bell Shakespeare production. So, yeah, keeping busy.
0: And um, so how did it all start really?
1: It started when I was actually in high school. Um, I always liked movies and especially horror movies and science fiction. Um And I was always intrigued, I think, by um, make-up and special effects. And I think during sort of my early high school years, I got into Super 8 filmmaking, which at the time was um, very strange and not many people, actually I, I think I was the only guy in my high school that was into it, um... You know, of course, this is before digital and um, HD and, you know, so basically we were shooting Super 8 movies which was a hybrid of 8 millimeter films um, which basically gave you a, a bigger picture for the, I mean, 8 millimeter used to be 16mm cut down the middle which yielded a smaller gate size and then they came up with Super 8 in the 70s. Which um, was its own format, which actually gave you a bigger picture for the actual strip of eight millimeter film. And then it actually got quite sophisticated, where you could um, you could get sound film, you could you could um, use projectors had stereo inputs, and you could actually lay music down, and you could actually really make a film. You could take it a step further and actually multi-track soundtracks. Um, like in an exterior type way, and then actually lay them down onto one onto the soundtrack stripe because it basically had two stripes: your your dialogue or your live on set stripe, and then your your background or music. And you could actually um, get very sophisticated and you know mix music with sound effects and create your own little movies. I mean, it's sort of where Peter Jackson people like that started and. Christopher Nolan and even M Night um all sort of you know we're probably of similar age and grew up doing um the same things and i think as an extension of that you know i was doing models and makeup and just trying to make the films look uh more interesting and have a bit of production value there was also at the time a couple of publications um like Cine Fantastic and Facts, which is still going now but it's mainly a, a CG digital magazine. Um, but there was also another one called Cine Magic, which is a um, sort of guide to amateur filmmaking magazine and it, it would show you how to do, you know, glass paintings and make models and build sets but it also dealt with, you know, how to do a script and how to cast actors and so it was a real... Everything involved, um, type of publication for you to make movies, but it also had a strong sort of bent towards fantastic filmmaking and, um, you know, science fiction horror. And a lot of people, I mean, it was American magazine, so it was very influential, um, along with your Star Logs and your Fangoria magazines, um, because no one in Australia was. Was doing it, and that sort of coincided with movies like The Thing and Alien and The Howling, and the work of you know the major special effects makeup artists at the time, like Rick Baker and Rob Botine and Stan Winston. And so, this would have been between like 1979 and 86, which was the big special makeup effects explosion where you know you had. You know the John Carpenters and the David Cronenberg's doing all these really, um, sort of, disturbing films and using a lot of special makeup effects and to tell their stories. So I, I guess a combination of all that um, really sort of, you know, was, was you know the I was bitten by the bug and I was also learning illustration and painting and everything as well and it was just a combination of, of just trying it all and just spending, you know, lots of time on my own or with, you know, the couple of friends I had at the time <laughs> acting in my movies um, and, yeah, we just would go down to the bush and just, you know, some, you know, do stunts with our BMX bikes and film it and then, you know, make a dummy and throw it off a quarry cliff and, you know, or do wounds or bleeding, you know, necks on someone and, you know, or you know, running over a dummy with a car, or uh, yeah, I remember one friend had a shotgun and we blew off her head. In the Middle of the suburbia. I mean, a lot of stuff you couldn't do now, but yeah, I think that's sort of where it all started, and then uh, it just progressed from there. Was that too long an answer?
0: No, 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 it's good. Uh, more stories are better. Uh, oh, okay. So who, who sort of um, was financing all that? Was it you, or like, was it your dad? It,
1: it, no, it actually it. When I was um, sort of as a, a prelude to this, um, I was learning oil painting, um, as well as illustration and um, technical drawing, and but I was I was doing all this outside of school because our school, I mean art at school at the time was very ridiculous, you know. So I didn't do any. I did take drawing at school. Um, which actually teaches you how to draw things in perspective, and uh, um, but I, I didn't do any art at school because it was all about you know self-expression, and which which is all fine, but it, but it, you know I wanted to learn how to paint and draw and and actually make you know or sculpt or you know actually. Learn the disciplines or the different crafts, so the more practical stuff, right? yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's like you know, da Vinci and Michelangelo and um, Salvador Dalla that they, they, they were, before, and even Picasso, you know, before they did their surrealism or abstract stuff, they could actually, you know, draw something. You know, they're a really good draftsmen, they could draw a person in perspective and at a certain angle, and, and then they decided to unlearn everything they had learned, so to speak. But, uh, yeah, I was doing landscape painting and I was actually, um, my dad would put them in little art shows and stuff and I'd actually sell them, you know, for a couple of hundred bucks a piece and I think one weekend I made like 1500 bucks because I had about nine paintings Um, and I just used the money, you know, I never had it had a McDonald's job or a KFC job in high school. Oh, you got lucky. So, um, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, and, you know, at the time, you know, I think a Super 8 camera was you you could get a good one, a, you know, like a Canon XLS or I think a 540 XLS, I'm trying to remember, or well, there's a 1080 as well, which is ironic now that we shoot stuff in HD 1080, I wonder if that's got to, anything to do with that. But there was a couple of Canons and couple Of really, there's a um, Braun put out a couple of really good cameras um, with really good lenses. Um,
0: you don't hear too much about Braun these days, Is
1: no, really? no. One was called a, and there's also another brand, Bayou. I think it was pronounced. Um, re- really, you know, I think the most expensive camera that would have been about $1,200, but you could get a really good one for about for about easily $400 um, and then, you know, you needed a, a good projector, um, maybe a little editing movie type machine which, I mean, Kmart actually, believe it or not, had their own range of Super 8 equipment and it was called Focal and they actually had their own film stock, Super 8 film stock and you would, you would shoot your film and take it to Kmart and then, a week later you'd go back in and they would have had it processed.
0: Oh.
1: So there was like Super 8 Labs. I think the main lab was in Melbourne. Um, but, of course, there was Kodak and um, Kodak Film. There
0: was... Um, so the more expensive the film, the better, the quality, the...
1: Kodak Kodachrome 40 was um, the main film that we used. It was really... And I've still got all my Super 8 movies, and they're still in, you know, really good condition. I, you know, need to get them telecined one day. But um, Kodachrome 40 referred to the what they call ISO now, which used to be ASA, which is the yeah, film speed. So it was uh, 40 ISO shooting at night, and 25 shooting in the day because you would use a filter. In the day, which you lost a stop, yeah. So it wasn't very fast, but it was remarkable. Like if all you had to do was light, had a really amazing exposure latitude, and of course it was you weren't shooting neg, you were shooting reversal. There was a They had a Nectochrome 160 that they had as well, and there was also the um, Agfa brand. Is it Agfa?
0: I think so. Yeah. The, the
1: orange. They yeah. had they had one as well, um, but it was all reversal. So you had to, um, you know, light. And if you lit it properly, you got some amazing, you know, looks. You, you had to, you know, light it a little. I mean, not that you did this consciously at the time, because. Um,
0: Were there any like stressful moments when you thought, "Oh crap, my mind not actually." Have- filmed it properly or exposed it right? Um,
1: yeah, there, there, there was always that but, you know, I usually my main sort of um, I think i just left high school and I was working as a junior in a commercial art studio and um, I spent the year on weekends making uh, an anamorphic Super 8 sort of. Uh, extravaganza which ended up to be about 20 minutes long. It was sort of like a science fiction Blade Runner movie and I tried to do a lot of sort of matte paintings and, um, you know, little model effects and stuff and it came out pretty good. But, um, yeah, we shot that at the time there was a, an anamorphic lens which you shot with and it squeezed your image and then you put that on the projector and it unsqueezed it. wasn't a great piece of glass you know, compared to just shooting normal, um, your normal unsqueezed image. Um, the problem was that it was, I think, it was about, it was like four by three, or it wasn't very widescreen. So the only way you could get a widescreen would be you'd have to either crop your projection, or I think I even made a matte box and actually, you know, blocked off the top and bottom, which is a little bit silly because it was soft. Uh so
0: it's like we, the very indie approach.
1: Yeah, the, so I think what we ended up doing was we we on the mat box we had lines where we had the almost like the full gate but then we had lines which indicated where we wanted to crop it top and bottom and then what we would do is we would actually um we would shoot the movie we would project it onto our screen and then we'd actually physically Lay velvet on the actual screen, so it was like like when you go to a cinema where the the screens move, you know. So it actually, we'd actually we'd be projecting on black velvet, um, but it, it, it made a more of a one eight five or two three five sort of format, which we all it's clever or loved. Of course, you lost the top and bottom. So, um, but
0: you're sort of wary when you're actually shooting it. You're sort of wary not to chop off someone's head, and it's it's yeah. exactly how
1: they sh- would you will when it was filmed. They would shoot Super 35. Yeah, it was basically full gate, but then they'd crop at top and bottom. So you're not actually um, spreading your the width of your thing with an anamorphic lens when you project it. Um, but it, it means that you can use prime lens, spherical lenses, not anamorphic lenses, um, which is why they sort of, I guess, came up with the super thirty-five format, you know. But then people love the anamorphic look, and um, so they, they've become two different diff, two different ways to create a a widescreen sort of aspect ratio. But yeah, so I just was, sh- you know, would shoot that on. Friday and Saturday nights, and I'd put makeup effects in it, and you know, just have you know, I had a broom handle with a microphone stuck on it, and you know, shot, you know, recorded the dialogue and had a couple of them. We did that for like a year, and then we had a big screening. Um, and then I think around that, then I, you know, obviously Super 8 was getting superseded by you know, your video 8s and your your different camcorder um, cameras that were coming out and then people started shooting feature films on, you know, JVC, uh, different cameras and, I mean, I, you know, this is even before HD so they were still basically PAL format and, yeah, if you go back and look at it, some of them now they're pretty pretty abysmal. But, yeah, then it all got into you know, shooting stuff for, you know, video clips and again shooting with a. remember the Sony PD100 came out and it was like the bee's knees but again you're still shooting only 720 by 576 so it was still not a huge format and then Super 8 sort of died away and then people started guillotining Super 8 out of 35mm negative stock and using it t- to shoot, you know, TV ads. This is again in America. There was a company called Super 8 Sound. And so you could actually shoot, you know, Kodak Negative that they were, sh- you know, shot the Matrix on or something. And But then you had to get a it Tally. It, 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 I remember working out. I, I did some, it was like $150 a minute by the time you shot it, got it processed, um, and then got a Tally Cine for post, um, which means you were sort of finishing on tape. Um, And so everyone thought, well, why aren't we shooting 16 mil at least, you know, sort of defeated the purpose. So I think that sort of died. Um, But, yeah, and then, you know, just got into shooting um, with the PD100 and shooting and then just slowly, not that I'm an expert, but, just shooting HD for my work stuff and shooting behind the scenes. Um, but, yeah, and, and then when going back, you know, when we, I started working as a commercial artist and then met a friend of mine who became a business business partner.
0: So how did you meet uh, Nick, who's now your business partner?
1: Um, we had a mutual, there was a a makeup shop that, um slash it was it was mainly a makeup shop and again this is back in this would be like you know 85 86 87 where you know the Australian film industry isn't as big as it is now and we didn't have the studios and we you know every now and then an overseas production would come over but it's not you know we didn't have fox studios and we didn't um it's certainly not. You know, like it it is now. So, and what was
0: available back then? Like, what what sort of studios that are still recognised today? Were there any? Or
1: the first studios they built was the Gold Coast ones. Yep, and that was about 1990-ish or maybe a little bit after that. They were still shooting where Fox Studios is now. Um, used to be the old pavilions for the. Royal Easter show and they actually shot Dark City there, you in know, in and a few other films, Razorback I think shot there and maybe Thunderdome, Max Thunderdome. But they were just in these big pavilions, big sheds. They weren't sound stages. Yeah. Um, and then I th- it was The Matrix pretty much. That was one, probably the first um, which we worked on and did lots of cool stuff on. But that was probably, that was when they built, Fox had bought the land and they turned, actually made stages and the big pavilion, which is I think is now stage one, they just sort of revamped, they actually kept it as a big giant aircraft hanging out looking pavilion but they just turned it into a sound stage. So it's quite big and they, they do a lot of. So, you know, they soundproofed it and made it into a studio but if you look at it from the outside it just looks like a giant aircraft hang. So I think it was the Matrix that, you know, caused that and caused a real sort of influx of productions to come over. Um, But before that there was stuff happening but we didn't have the um, sort of infrastructure and... Um, a lot of Australians, the, you know, I mean there was the whole 80s 10BA, you know, um, exploitation th- cinema that Australia was famous for, which was really influential, um, you know, with me growing up. But it was still frowned upon by the establishment and to a degree it still is. You know, the, the films that Australia makes and gets distributed you know, whether they're at the cinema for a week or two weeks, um, are, are films that they, they you, usually, the thing is, it's not balanced or fair because, you know, someone will make a genre film for a million bucks, but it doesn't get any distribution because it's not, you know, culturally significant to the Australian, you know, psyche. And it's just very strange. And it's a, it, it it seems to have always been like that, and you know, I don't really see it changing. So you'll see, you know, a movie that they'll spend twelve million dollars on, and it's at the cinema for a week, and but it, it'll get TV ads, it'll get some sort of distribution, but no one will go and see it. But they'll put money into it. But um, but going back to so yeah, I was going to this sort of um makeup supply shop to get. ..you know, latex and grease paint and stuff like that. It had a, a bit of effect stuff like morticians, wax and, you know, but nothing big and, and the woman that ran it said, oh, you should meet Nick, you know, he, he does a similar thing and um, we basically met and just sort of started working together and then we actually um, didn't really think about setting up or working here. Ironically, we actually wanted to go and work in L.A. And we went a couple of times because we both had jobs which funded our trips and all that. Um, And, you know, we met Rick Baker and Greg Canham and Stan Winston and we're Nelly going to go back and work work for Rick Baker. And we went to the – our first trip we went was in 87 and we went to – Screaming, Screaming Mad George, a monster making contest and met tons of effects guys, a lot of whom we're still friends with now. But it was sort of ironic that we had to sort of travel over there and then that all fell through and then we actually came back here and established ourselves here and then the industry sort of developed here. It's sort of not what we thought was going to happen. Um, so,
0: what was the process like of of establishing makeup effects group? Was we a, just started.
1: We were sort of um, it, it was it was sort of exciting, and hard at the same time. It was hard because most of the people that were doing stuff here, and there wasn't a lot of them, sort of all knew each other and came up through. ...sort of a couple of main people and if you didn't... ...if you weren't in that club then you were frowned upon... ...and basically were stabbed in the back and um, not very welcome... ...and and people literally tried to, to stop you. Um, in subtle or overt ways depending on how they were but Nick and I just... We spent a couple of years getting it, you know, we we did Dick Smith was the main, I'm sure anyone listening to this knows who Dick Smith, the master of prosthetic makeup is, Um, did Armideus, Taxi Driver, The Exorcist. He actually, when he retired, put out a correspondence course which we did um, and probably every effects guy working around Mm -hmm. today um, has done his course or the main sort of... um, Gamut of artists that are big, big now from your, um, you know, around our age would have done his course. So that was our training, and as well as a lot of self training. So we didn't, we didn't do a makeup course here or learn, you know. And we just got ourselves um, a body of work together, and we started marketing ourselves and to advertising agencies and started you know, on commercials and just started getting work really and um, we ended up getting, a, you know, ha- having, um, you know, we sort of started out of our bedroom sort of thing and then we ended up having to get a studio because we needed the space and and the workload and, um, yeah, and th- that was like 35 years ago and then, um, you know, we... We did our first feature which was Island of Dr Moreau um, and we'd done a lot of big commercials before that and then we did The Matrix and then um, it all sort of just flowed from there. We were, you know, going from film to film and sort of haven't looked back ever since.
0: Was it you that came up with the name Makeup Effects Group or was it combination? Oh, we both did.
1: Yeah, It's actually because I don't know if many uh, one of our favourite makeups is Meg Mucklebones out of Legend, so we liked Meg Mucklebones, and we we sort of liked the Meg acronym. Yeah. So we thought, oh, makeup effects group. So it sometimes, sometimes people call us MEG or Meg, um, like Meg Effects. We've been called, but it's it it actually stemmed from Meg Mucklebones. The because Rob O'Teen was one of our, and sort of still is, he did the thing special makeup effects. Well, he he ran the the show, and he was one of he doesn't. He's it's a mystery where he's apparently he's a, he's a recluse now, and he he left the industry. He got got jack of it, um, but he, he was one of our main influences, and the stuff he did, you know, hasn't you know a lot of it hasn't been surpassed even today, especially the thing. Which he's probably most famous for. And he was Rick Baker's protege. And, um, but he sort of, when his career took off, he sort of had a career that probably a lot of people would, would agree sort of superseded Rick Baker's, which, you know, <laughs> I'm sure it didn't go down too well. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's how the, the name started from.
0: And can you pinpoint, like um your favorite project that you've worked on or has every single project just been your favorite and
1: well they're all most of them are are pretty favorite because we uh, you know like the matrix was great because we we did really good stuff in it but it got seen see a lot of stuff we do you know either doesn't get a theatrical release or if it does you know it's gone after a week
0: so what do you do if one of your projects doesn't get a theatrical release, and you want people to see it.
1: Um, well, th- then it sort of comes down to putting our work on our YouTube channel or marketing it on social media. But you know, at the end of the day, you know, it, people do see it through Blu-ray or you know, you know, Pirate Bay or or, um, <laughs> or downloading it. You know, on if it's on Netflix or something. Um, you know like we we recently did um mystery in between series 2 which is a fox series and so th- so that that'll get um exposure um i mean there's a, there's a lot of diff- i mean before it was it was vhs and drive-ins if it did you know before but then all that died and then now you've got all the other you know the streaming and the the online um Venues. So, yeah, I mean, it, it does get seen, but whether it's, you know, a, a big impactful um, project is really up to the success of of the film. Um, but yeah, you know, we, we always try and do really good work, and, you know, we, we could do really like a really good silicon body. And we've done a couple of films um, um, in Taiwan, and uh, we did some great stuff in those, but they were like Taiwan slash um, Hong Kong co-productions that didn't get much exposure, you know, in this part of the world. But, you know, it, um, you know, the world's, you know, it doesn't, like we don't think in terms of where we are now and um, where the film gets really because you do a film, you know, for China, you could do a film for, you know, Europe, it's just whoever... You know, we've been contacted, you know, from all parts of the world and sometimes it doesn't happen but, you know, you get a phone call from someone's in the Philippines and they want something for a movie and then – or Vietnam or – so it doesn't really matter. I mean, as, as long as, you know, they're realistic about what they want to do and and they they've got, you know, a realistic budget or time's – uh scale then um then yeah we can do really good work
0: and can you uh pinpoint one project that sort of launched your career to where it is now or has it just been a more of a progressive thing i think it's just
1: been a, a steady slow progressive just earning a reputation for doing quality work you know on budget on time and and just you, but it, it wasn't, I mean, even when we did The Matrix, I mean, when we did we were working on The Matrix, no one really knew that it was going to be this huge hit. And even when it was this huge hit, it wasn't like, you know, the phone stopped ringing and everyone was banging down our door. It was just, oh, that's really good, you know, people will see our work. But it, I don't know, it's a, it's a strange industry. It, it's not like, you know... A singer or a performer, or you know, they have a hit song and then they're, you know, top of the charts for twenty weeks. It, it it doesn't seem to, you know, work that way. Like, you know, I know people that have won Oscars and they haven't worked for a year. You know, so we'll, our thing has just been slow, steady, and and whatever you know people ask of us, we'll we'll do what we can do and do the best work. We can do, um, but there's no. There's never been. Oh my god, we're going to be huge and big now and famous. And I mean, that sort of tended to happen more in the '80s because there was, you know, pretty much like, you know, eight top special makeup effects guys who were at the top. And then there was like the next tier down. I mean, those top, you know, they'll booked out for a couple of years, and there, and there are. A, you know some top makeup artists around the you know that are probably booked out for a couple of years but there's a lot of a lot of people doing effects now and a lot of um so all we can do is you know just um contribute what what we do um and you know put our unique stamp on it and and our quality um you know, make sure the quality is there and and the design is there and we just do really good work.
0: And what do you sort of do during the hard times? Uh, do you just do a ton of promotional work or what, what's it like being in those difficult situations and not really knowing if you're actually going to work again? Because this is essentially what the film industry is like in a way. It's very much up and down. So you, sometimes you don't yeah, really know if you're going to get a job or not.
1: Yes, it's very feast or famine um yeah there can be months when we actually haven't got you know a job with you know money coming in but we're always busy we're always busy doing some sort of project whether it's you know a, a big movie where we've had to crew up with 20 people or it's just stuff that you know me and nick can handle we're always doing something and if it's not um actual uh, production, yeah, then it's admin or it's or it's looking the new materials or, or yeah, doing stuff for our YouTube channel to pr- promote a certain project. So, yeah, it, you're always busy. But we've always found that, you know, I've always got this theory which is why it's taken us so long to, to update our showreel. Whenever I work on our showreel, <laughs> we get work. Um, and then, you, you know... You have to shelve the show roll again or any sort of um you know web website update um till point but um i we sometimes joke oh, we need some work let's let's pull the show roll out again and <laughs> and then you know we start doing that and then we get get a film or we get a job or you you know get an art piece we we do a lot of stuff for artists as well, like you know exhibitiony um fine artists who come up with concepts and ideas but they might not necessarily have this, the skills or the technical prowess to actually make what they're thinking so they'll subcontract us and and we'll do the sculpture and mould making and, um, and you know, people think that's a conflict of interest but, you know, if it pays the bills, it pays the bills. Um, it's all quite clear of who does what, you know, they they've come up with a concept and, and we've just executed it. Um, so, you know, we do that as well. But, yes, something always tends to come up. Um, and um, But, yeah, th- th- there's obviously lean times and there's obviously times when, you know, you you have money coming in but, you know, the more money you come in the more tax you pay to the tax bands. <laughs>
0: That's right, yeah. And in terms of like going on, I know every single project's different in terms of how much budget budget wise. How much, like generally speaking, how much would say like a movie cost for prosthetics and makeup and all that?
1: Well, I mean, we've done we've done prosthetics or get we call them gags. Like, say if the movie's a thriller, and and there's you know like a cutthroat in it, or there's guy gets hit over the head with a, a weapon and there's a couple of, you know, there might be three or four gags in it. And, you know, depending on, on what they want to see, you know, if, if, if they want to see um, a neck bleeding on camera, then we have to make a bleeding apparatus and we've got to cover it up with the skin uh, that, and then paint, you know, make it look realistic. And, um, you know, that's a lot more work than if, for example, it, it's something under clothes. And you can hide it with the clothes. So, But, you know, you can spend a couple of thousand dollars on something or you can go up to hundreds of thousands of dollars. If it's a creature or a creature character suit where you have to mould an actor's body and then sculpt it and then, you know, run a foam latex body and paint it and put animatronics and then you're talking, you know, lots of money because it's, it's lots of time and it's lots of, you know, artists... Uh, lots of labour to do it properly, um, and you know you you'll need twelve to fifteen weeks, depending what. Usually we only get about twelve, uh, which means we've got to you know maybe throw more people at it, which puts your budget. But yeah, it, it's it really just depends what it is. I mean, sometimes you know you might do a makeup and it's a one day thing, and you know it's a thousand bucks. You know, and you just. Um, Making up you know like a character makeup um, and and you might be using some old pieces that you've got from another mold which you can run for them but it's it, every job is different and every job we we um, we look at individually and and work out you know the first one of the first questions we ask when people ask us to do stuff is when we say well what's your time and budget? And you usually they go, well, that's what you know we're asking you, but a lot of the time they're they're fishing for for prices and they're trying to work out you know what you're willing to do and the, but we just we just say look what do you want done and what's your budget if if they say we've got a you know we've got this ailing creature that we want built and we've got two two thousand dollars we we just say that's that's just not realistic." It's sort of like walking. We have all these analogies <laughs> which we which we tell which are quite common in our industry but it's one of the classic ones is, you know, it's not like ordering a pizza, you know, because you've got to make all this stuff from scratch. Um, so, you know, it's not like you ring up, oh, have you got a, a seven-foot-tall demon creature, you know, that's painted blue? That we can use for our moving. Oh, you got one in the corner. Yeah, ready to go. <laughs> it has to be made. It has to be all made from scratch. So um, that's sometimes what you know produces fine art. It's very. It's also a very strange industry where any other business, like so say, for example, plumbers, or you know, you you hire a plumber and they give they give you a quote and then you know there's a rate per hour and all that whatever it is and then they come and do the work and then you pay them but the film industry seems to be this one industry where these there's all these sort of oh but you know we don't have that sort of money and um but you we'll give you really good credit and, um you know do you think you can do it yeah. cheap and then you sort of go well i couldn't I couldn't ask my plumber to do yeah you know, oh, do you think you can do you think you do this one for free and I'll pay and they're just gonna know yeah. and walk away. It's just i don't know it just seems to be full of a lot of haggling, <laughs> especially if if you're working within i mean normally if you're working with top experienced producers they just they know what stuff costs, and they' go, like, yeah what okay, well, we can't afford that, but maybe we can afford this, but sometimes you just got these really strange ridiculous. Request and you just, we, we yeah, we, we sometimes, if we're in a feeling a bit cheeky, but we sort of get it's, it's sort of like walking into a Porsche dealership and saying, Oh, how much is this car? 200 grand. Okay, okay. I've got 40 grand. What do you reckon we can do? <laughs> and they go, What? Sometimes it feels a bit like that, where you sort of asked, because there's also this, Oh, well, you know, it's it's creative and, you know, they're having fun and, you know they really love their work, so you know I'm sure they're willing to.
0: But it's still work at the end of the day. Like it's still it's work. Still it's still a lot st- of hours and stress, and
1: exactly. And it's just because it's creative doesn't mean it's not a business, or um, yeah, you got to deal with deadlines. Um, you, you know, you can't. It, you know, yeah, you, you can't like ring up on the day of the shoot and go, yeah, sorry, sorry, we didn't get it done. Yeah, we need another week. Um, you know, the, you get screamed at, and you'd probably never work again. So we've we've always been uh, proud that we've you know been on time, on schedule, and whether we've done it for the budget or we've had to absorb budget over over overages, you know that's that's our our um, thing that we've had to deal with. But yeah, we've always delivered a good product and will continue to
0: and and, um some of the the titles as well that you've worked on from wolverine matrix Um, narnia backtrack
1: by frankenstein uh we did charlotte's web babe did an indie film called pimp last year we did necrotronic um worked on the hobbit um they did the Matrix films. What else do we do? Um Oh Dr. Morale, which I've mentioned. Um, Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Yeah. Um, Carton, Australian yeah. film. Red Ink. Um, Red Ink. Uh, yeah, I'd have to look at uh, Ghost in the Shell. Pirates on. of the Caribbean. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, as well as tons of commercials. I think we've done over... We have 200 commercials and I think we're, you know, over 45 movies.
0: A lot of people would recognize the Dolmio ads.
1: The Dolmio puppets that we do, yeah.
0: And uh, Telstra recently, The Giant in that, which didn't actually screen for a long period of time, but it was still there.
1: (laughs) Yeah, they they could have done a few more shots on that. It was pretty quick, but we we did a good making of. We did um, recently a Westpac commercial with the, the Beirut Baker, we did some old age subtle old age makeup on that.
0: We've done quite a bit with, uh, I think it's the NRL.
1: Oh, uh, Fox Leagues and Fox. Ma- Ma- yep. Maddie John the show, yes, with with um,
0: which are hilarious.
1: Nathan Hindmarsh and Brian Fletcher making them up as different characters. They like to do a lot of pranks and stories, and and they're getting it a little bit more elaborate too. But yeah, they're they're very they're lots of fun to work with, and they love the the sort of process of creating characters and and being in disguise and they can go and torment people. Um, a recent one we did was um, Nathan Highmarsh dressed up as Pennywise for me, t- <laughs> terrorising people. So, the, yeah, th- that's, a, that's a little fun aspect of what we do as well. Um,
0: Is that sort of like they film that in one day or do they film it on different days and you come back in and uh, um, redress them and all that sort of stuff?
1: We actually... for. Usually, it's one day because it's, it's, um, it's a big makeup, and you know, to do it two or three times would you know push out the budget. But uh, you know, the one day application seems to be the norm. We did do Pennywise on Hindmarsh twice because they couldn't get all the people that he wanted to scare in the one room on, or in the one location. So we did that like a week apart and then they cut it together. Um, but it's usually like a day thing and we've done Matty Johns up as a few different characters and Brian Fletcher as Raymond who was the sort of <laughs> overweight. The
0: fat pig and he's disgusting. He, he, he was
1: the overweight wardrobe Dresser, work, yeah. work experience person. And um, the funny thing about that is that usually no one knows about like who's under the makeup, and and that's sort of part of our job is to disguise them so that you can't see who it is and and uh, he was terrorising the NRL players and and sort of touching them inappropriately and <laughs> and then they were just like looking at him in the camera and going who who the who the hell is this guy, but yeah that that was lots of fun
0: uh, was, yeah I remember just like dying of laughter watching those ones um, and. Okay, so in terms of the film industry, the makeup industry with visual effects, how have you sort of, have you had to adapt a lot more to, because a lot of films these days instead of going to say special makeup effects, they will just spend the budget in doing it visually. So how has that sort of affected you or has it affected you?
1: I think um, I think it's balanced out. Um, everyone sort of, Freaked out when Jurassic Park came out, which was, what was that, 92 or something?
0: 93.
1: 93. Because everyone just went, oh, well, there goes our job, you know, it's all going to be done CG now. But there seems to be a lot more prosthetics out, you know, getting done in productions, you know, from Star Trek Discovery to Game of Thrones to this, and there's tons of prosthetic makeup artists, makeup artists out there that are working on big stuff. Um. The, the only th- and which means there's lots of work and there's lots of makeup artists and um, you know lots of alien characters you know all the Star Trek movies and the the main thing that the CGs you know everyone goes oh you know destroyed animatronics and all that but it only really destroyed in my opinion realistic animal animatronics but then you go. This, like, the CG realistic animals are better than the animatronic animals anyway. I mean, the the tiger in pie is like phenomenal. Mm. Um, and it's very hard to do realistic animatronic puppets because it's very hard to get the fur right. Because it's all got it's all obviously, you, unless you go out and kill a lion, you can't fur <laughs> a lot, you can't make a puppet and use real lion fur. I mean, it's different if you're doing a cow or. Or a sheep, or something, but if you are doing like a,
0: a bear as well, a bear,
1: even a bear's hard, um, and obviously no one wants to go out and you know harm a real animal. So the hair's either um, synthetic, or it's got to be hand tied. It'll be hand tied yak or human hair, and and that takes six months. If when um, if they do an ape suit or a gorilla suit, um. They'll use, and if it's a high end production, they'll use real hair and it'll be probably yak and mixed with human. And yes, a couple of people will hand tie that hair suit for six months just to get the hair right. Um,
0: Was that what it was like in the Wolverine? Because you made the bear.
1: No, we actually did. We used a company that makes hair for characters um, that is pretty, pretty damn good. Um, in terms of the really, and, and you basically order it like you order carpet. So you <laughs> say, "I want you know, 150 meters. I'm doing a grizzly bear, and I want it this color. I want, I want this density. I want it to be this this thick and um, this stretchiness. And and you know, it's usually you know on camera, you know, pretty damn good. Um. But so getting back to the animatronics, like we still do and we did the bear animatronic bear and the Wolverine and one of the reasons we made it was because it was in rain and the visual effects people said, yeah, for us to do a 3D bear with rain coming on it with Hugh Jackman in the shot is going to be really hard. If you guys can do a practical animatronic bear and if we have to, you know, enhance some movements, you know, like make it scream a bit more because obviously if we've got a mechanical puppet we can only open the mouth so far, you know, And but, but that's something that they can very easily accentuate with digital effects. And that's what's good now is that you've got the best of both worlds so you do and even VFX artists are really keen to get as much as they can in camera because they know they can enhance it and make it even better in post. For you to do a a three D character from scratch, I mean, it, it, to, I mean, Jurassic Park was the was amazing when it came out, and like the T Rex was great. But I mean, the big problem with a lot of CG characters is they tend to defy physics a bit. If you look at King Kong, I mean, that to me still looks like computer computer graphics, even though it's beautifully done. The way that he they bounce around is one issue. Um yeah but it, but if they're doing a realistic animal like it was really hard for people like us when it was being done to do a realistic animatronic lion or like you could do it but it's a lot of work and usually today they want to invest that money in a cg but having said that you know we do animatronic alien you know we do if we do a demon and it's a non human you know, design. Then we'll do animatronics in the head. So we they're still being used. It's just well, what context is it being used in? Mm. Um, so yeah, it's very easy to, easy to say broad strokes. Oh, you know, the CGs replaced. But I think it's a it's a good balance now, and a lot of directors are you know they want to walk onto a set and put something in front of the camera and stick a light on it and shoot it. Rather than just you know usually putting it in yeah, yeah. I mean that' never yeah. looks
0: it's better to go practical yeah than and then yeah. enhance it yeah
1: or okay. accentuate it, or the good thing too is that you can do rod removal, you can do wire removal you know we, we can have a we can have a tube coming out of someone's head that's making the forward bleed, and then it's paint out the tube because mm. you know our rig might necessitate we can't hide the tube or whatever for whatever reason but they can just paint it out so you know and There's they do it's a lot cheaper yeah. yeah and they can do you know accentuate bullet hits and blood spatter and and you know we can uh, another great trick is we can put a bullet hole on someone's forehead and you know it's there in the shot and they go action and it bleeds and then in in post they paint it out so that the bullet hole appears, you know, and they can make it, they can animate it, you know, breaking open the skin, breaking open. Um, so that's using both techniques. So it's just, it's just, it's like anything in filmmaking. is just being smart about it.
0: Mm. And um, okay, so moving forward in terms of like future work and plans and all that sort of stuff. What was. Sort of on your table at the moment, or coming up. Ah, uh,
1: probably the next step is to to make our own film the way we want to, hmm. with, with with stuff that we want in it. I mean, it, sometimes you know you work with people that. Um, and again, it's I don't know if it's a style thing now, but everything seems to be cut really quickly these days, so we can spend ten weeks on a a creature or a makeup, and then it's it's on screen for twelve frames. you know which can be a bit sort of disappointing so i
0: think it's the the attention span of this generation my generation of young people is just very very quick because of computer games computer games it's instagram social media but
1: 12 frames is pretty damn quick i mean it's,
0: it's very quick but everyone seems to have this okay move on to the next thing i want i want the next thing now rather than focusing on the one thing for a long period of time. Even a couple of seconds? Even, even a couple of seconds. That's if, all I'm asking for, a couple of seconds. They're all saying like these days the attention span of a young person is now 10 seconds. Wow. So if you don't capture Well, them, I'll go for 10 seconds. <laughs> I'll, I'll take 10 seconds any day. Yeah. But yeah, it's just that, that thing, right? Like um, any of those films that are coming out, like I was watching um, Dead Poet Society the other day, and it's just a very, very slow build before it actually gets up to anything good. Yeah. Um. But a lot of these, the but films you need really, that. You need it. Like it enhances the story. Yeah. Like, it keeps you there to to watch the next thing. But a lot of the movies that are coming out these days, I can't stand. Like all the Marvel movies. It's just the story is not there. It's very plain and it's so quick. Yeah.
1: And and usually, the the first five minutes is an action sequence.
0: Mm. So it's to draw. With its
1: own climax and you're going, what just happened? Mm. Yeah, and and speaking of, of, of all, the thing I'm finding with a lot of movies today, especially, I mean, not to point the finger at Marvel anyone, but a lot of genre films, a lot of sci-fi, they all just look like they're made by the same people. It's like they've done Captain America and finished on a Friday and then next week they've come back and done The Black Panther.
0: <laughs> yeah, pretty much.
1: It's just like so uh, what, what I mean, what would like to happen is something different to come out.
0: Mm.
1: You know, that that's one of the reasons. Um, I remember when The Matrix did come out and it won Visual Effects Awards, it was up against could have even been Phantom Menace and it could have been. It was either Fan Menace or the second one. The, was it Tech of the Clones* whatever? And the visual effects in The Matrix, even though they did the whole bullet time thing, which was uh, revolution, but that was actually being used in advertising quite a bit before that, the whole, you know, array of cameras and...
0: But it was just the fact that an actual movie did it. Yeah. To enhance the story. Yeah.
1: So the, th- But it wasn't It wasn't this amazing... Well, how they use the visual effects, and that was the ideas behind it. Mm. Um, that's what made it look amazingly unique. The actual techniques in it weren't anything amazing, but that competing with Phantom Menace, the thing about it was beautifully executed, but it was, we'd seen it all before. We'd seen spaceships, we'd seen planets, we'd seen starscapes, we'd seen, you know, spaceships going across the desert beautifully executed but everyone was familiar with with that, those visuals. But we weren't familiar with the Matrix visuals, Mm. which I think won it um, both the Visual Effects Award but also that um, reputation for being this. And the whole irony of it was that it was only unique to Western audiences. Anyone that was into Hong Kong action or anime had seen all that stuff before. Mm. So to all the genre fans that loved manga, um, John Woo action films, uh, Wo Pings, you know, Jet Li films, they they were really familiar with it. It it wasn't really anything unique to them. Um, But it was just to the whole broad Western audience that, oh, my God, we've never seen anything like this. We're like, "Uh, yeah, we have if you look in the right places. Yeah. Um, so I mean, that plays a lot of a lot, a big part in it too. It's like, and then that's the trouble in Australia is that all these people that want to make genre films and you know, they grew up on John Carpenter and David Cronenberg and and you know, John Landis and and horror movies and science fiction films, and you know, a lot of the mainstream establishment here. Wouldn't know who John Carpenter was. They wouldn't have seen the thing, you know. And and there's these filmmakers that want to make movies that, you know, they don't want to make films about Australia, or the cultural aspects. Not that that's bad, but it should be should be a balance. Mm. It shouldn't just be well. We're only going to make movies about Australia and Australian content, um, or we're gonna, or we're not going to make anything. Like I I don't understand why they had that mentality whereas no other country really in the world, like uh, do we need to state our cultural heritage so much? I mean more than, you know, smaller countries. Like you don't see, I mean they can be very influenced by their culture but it's like France don't just do movies about French history, or America doesn't make movies all about pilgrims. So it's it's just a strange. I don't know where it came from, and I mean, during the twenties, we're the biggest film industry in the world. Mm. And what was we'll, happened to it? Well, yeah, it's I I don't know. You know, then it died in the fifties, and then we had the the renaissance, which was. Which was great because it was quite artistic, and you had the Peter Weirs and the Fred Skepsis making all there. Even though there were films about, they were, you know, they were either dark or they were mysterious, you know, like, you know, Pig Hang Rock or The Casa de Paris or The Last Wave. There were mysteries and thrillers, and, you know, and then you had the whole exploitation, the whole genre stuff, which they call exploitation, but basically they were just. Movies that weren't, you know, about Australian heritage. So I don't know, that's still a bit of a a mystery to me and, you know, if you watch the great documentary, um, not quite Hollywood, it explains a lot of, you know, what that is all about. But I'd I'd like to see that um, be a bit more balanced and a bit fair, either fr- at the funding stage or the distribution stage, because um, I've, I've worked—I worked on one science fiction film here, and they went to one of the governing bodies to maybe to get a bit of funding for post. I think it was, and they again I won't mention any names, but they just looked at the filmmakers and went. It's a science fiction film, and it's a you know, it's not a film about Australia or the indigenous culture, and you know, so why would we give you money for a science fiction film? Um,
0: it seems to be like a lot of the films that are coming out today that are from or made from Australian filmmakers have to do with this topic of diversity, same sex, and all that stuff that's sort of been. I guess publicized in in media today. It's mm. like we want, we know that people are actually going to see that. So we want you guys to tell that yeah. story. It's going to make money. So if it does, but the like, irony
1: is they don't make money.
0: Mm, that's the thing.
1: Like how much money did Palm Beach or, make?
0: Not not much.
1: Nothing against the people that made it, but yeah, you know, or how much money is Ride Like a Girl going to make? That that might make money. That, I think that I think our biggest like a good movie, yeah. I think our some of our yeah. biggest films are films like Red Dog, and yeah, I mean he's a great director, and he did just did yeah. Danger Clothes. I
0: saw the director; he was actually having coffee at Hunters Hill. Crib, yeah, way. yeah.
1: So, but it's interesting that you know something like Red Dog, we have to bring in an American
0: mm.
1: lead. So again, you, you, you're talking about commerciality, and really you're making a a very commercial Australian film, which is. Fine as well but, you know, I'm sure a lot of the budget went into that lead actor and that would have guaranteed a distribution deal with a lot of major distributors around the world.
0: But even with distribution channels as well, I've heard that a lot of like indie filmmakers that actually get distribution deals, the distributor actually takes a vast majority yeah. of yeah, cut. Yeah, they, so yeah they're, they're, that's they're, a whole other issue. It's massive issue altogether but... Yeah. But
1: we had a friend that did. um, Don't know. I I probably shouldn't. He did a okay. Oh, I won't mention names. But he did a film, and he he got screwed by the distributors. But one of the distributors became a producer on a mainstream version that they did of his movie. Oh, no, not. So much the same script, but the same topic.
0: Okay.
1: So he made an indie version. Um, okay, as an example, so, so I've made a, a an eight hundred thousand dollar movie about tr- Trump.
0: <laughs> Good example.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and, but I couldn't afford big actors or big locations, and I did a guy up as Trump and he played Trump. Um, and I made this film and it was sort of somewhat well, well received. But then the distributor hooked up with these other producers and they made this the same film on a bigger budget with the same subject matter and got Alec Baldwin to play Trump and and then got a bigger just. Dis- that sort of scenario has happened, uh, where they've sort of um, not so much stolen the idea, but but they've stolen the topic because they've they've seen the value in that story. But th- this is sort of like, well, we can't we, can we, can we can't, can't release that one. Yeah. Let's get it remade, you know, with bigger it, actors yeah. and, big, and 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 that'll guarantee our distribution deal. I've seen that happen. Um, and it probably happens all around the world, but I've seen it especially happen here because uh, there's a lot of because with the more accessibility of equipment, uh, as you know, like a lot of people can just go out and shoot their own movie now. Mm. And whether they're shooting on iPhones or you know Blackmagic cameras, it's it's quite easy to go out and if you've got some good actors and good story, you can make your own movie and you. At a very professional level, the question is: A, does can you get that distributed, and will you reach audiences? That's more the the battle. Even though it's a battle to make a movie, the actual main battle is: Will anyone see it? And I think that's what.
0: Well, I guess you got the battle, and then you got the war. <laughs> so the distribution yep. is the war, and you got yeah. the battle of making the movie.
1: And I think that's where it should change. Mm. There should be more either funding or avenues or help um, or assistance to get your work seen. And I'm not talking about film, um, short film festivals and, you know, I mean... this. I
0: mean, do you you hear much of anyone that's done Tropfest these days? Like, do you see any more no. of their work? They just make a short film? Do anyone
1: thing? I know that's ever benefited from... Um, Tropfest was because he won it was Nash Edgerton mm-hmm. who's a director we work with quite a bit. But he's not where he is now because of Tropfest. It's because he's made, you know.
0: He's four, made some good work, yeah.
1: And he's made 400 video clips and music videos and he's done about three features now and he's doing Mr. Between. He's just constantly out there working and, and earn, earning mm-hmm. his, learning and earning his trade. Mm. You know, he won... Tropfest, when I think the second year or whatever it was, um, but he certainly didn't go. Okay, I've, I've, I've made Tropfest, so I'm 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 done now. I've made it. Mm. Um, that was just a bonus. and he, he had a really clever idea, but I I don't. To be honest, personally, I don't think. I think if you, if you do a short film, you know. We, it can be a calling card. It could be, you know, your work gets seen a bit. And, but I, I don't. Th- I think you've either got to make a feature, or you do a a short film as a proof of concept, um, and you get it seen by as many people in the world. But I think there's maybe a lot. You know, the, you know, there's a lot of these film festivals in little country towns. I mean, I, you know, unless you're from that town, like I I can't see you winning the um, the Maitland Film Festival or something. He's going to really launch your career around the world. I mean, it might be a personal milestone but, you know, I think if you've studied any, any of the work of someone like Dove Simmons, he says if you're going to put the effort into making a short film, with a little bit more effort you can make a feature film. Mm. I mean anyone that's made four short films, that there's your feature film, um, which is what you're going to do next. Yep, um, working on it. <laughs> so it, it's sort of like, well, why not just go and make a, uh, some sort of feature? Mm. You know, whether, you, whether it's, you know, the teenagers in the cabin, they get get all killed by the end of it or you just do a drama in a courtroom or, you know, imagine if someone made 12 Angry Men today.
0: Oh, Incredible,
1: you know, it, it would cost nothing to make, and um, you know they might have might have to modern it up a bit, but imagine, you know, that sort of caliber. I mean, even early Christopher Nolan work is is different and and unique. So, I think that's that's what you got to do.
0: I think one of my favorite Nolan films is The Prestige and Insomnia. Uh, Insomnia was just completely different. I, I think Memento is Memento.
1: Yeah, I think that's genius
0: it was genius i just thought for me prestige just gripped me a little bit more yeah no, story. i love the was, prestige yeah. yeah it was more entertaining as well yeah whereas memento sort of like he went on this mind numbing bend yeah <laughs> it was like constantly repeating certain things yeah i think that repetition kind of annoyed me in a way but it was brilliant at the same time so whereas prestige was consistent kept you entertained, kept you constantly trying to think and trying to guess yeah. who who's who and, yeah, like that is br- brilliant and the fact like Insomnia had a great cast of Robin Williams and Al Pacino mm. in it and you're just trying to guess did he actually kill that person in the yeah. end. Um, yeah, it was just like Nolan films are incredible. Um, but, yeah, like in terms of the film industry today and where it's going, for someone like me that's trying to break in and trying to get out there and make a movie it is i don't think, is I, quite I don't
1: think you need to actually break into it i think you just make a movie mm. it's it's not it's just there to work in you, it there's no p- point in breaking into a pool that you don't really want to be
0: part of yeah or if, yeah. if you're
1: doing something different like there's, there's no need to you could you could work with a lot of people in in, the, but I I don't really see you or anyone needing that to be a filmmaker. Mm. Like it's not because there's tons of people that are doing it, you know, in their spare time and they've got a film out there. I mean, Paul Cox, who's the famous Australian director, constantly worked out of the film industry out of the he funded his own movies. Um he had really had nothing to do with the establishment. Again, he didn't agree. I think there's a story he he won some lifetime achievement award. Um you know, by the AFI, who are now actor or whatever it's called. Um and he basically tore them a new one, said, Where were you when I needed you? Mm-hmm. You know you never fund, gave me funding, and now now you want to give me this award, so that it makes you guys look all good. So I don't want it. He just went out and made his own movies. So um, yeah, I mean, like any, you know, there's a lot of politics. There's a lot of hierarchy. There's um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that is isn't really there to serve. The filmmaker and it will benefit them it, it, it's more there's a lot of agendas that are probably there
0: money as well big, big issue yeah i mean like they say these days it's more accessible to make movies like they bring out new cameras and equipment for filmmakers but the thing is it's not the equipment that makes the filmmaker i think they're forgetting that important aspect of it the filmmaker is someone that understands the concept of making a good story mm. that has a great message in it that's going to entertain you. It's different to everything else as well. Like for me, I love the uniqueness of dramas because you go through different things every day. Like life is drama. Um, but then you've got the mystery of that as well. So trying to figure that out, trying to write uh, the, the right kind of characters, mystery, and thrillers. You know, keeping you on the edge of your seat.
1: But that doesn't cost any money. Which no, is good.
0: it doesn't. Like writing is free. That's the benefit of it. The only other thing to add to that is you've actually got to go out in there and do it. Like, yeah. you know, don't procrastinate writing something because you think that it's not going to go anywhere. Just give it a go and write it. Which yeah.
1: The good thing is that you can always reshoot something hmm. or add to it or uh, that didn't work. I mean, a lot of directors, you know, they'll budget for – you know, pick up shoots and they'll cut the film and they'll go, ah, oh, it doesn't work and they'll, if it's a bigger f- budget film, they'll spend six to eight weeks and do reshoots and they'll t- tweak it and, and until they're happy with it until it's, you know, and oftentimes, you know, the studio steps in and it's not the movie they wanted to make, you know, they don't have Final Cut. Mm. Um, that happens to the big guys.
0: And that happened to uh, Ridley Scott on I think it was, was it, was Blade Runner. Blade Runner, yeah, yeah,
1: and it happened Terry Gilliam on Twelve Monkeys mm-hmm. and James Cameron. Yeah, I don't know. James would be pretty hard to not get Final Cut, I would imagine.
0: I think it happened on Terminator. Oh, Terminator. Well, yeah, back yeah. Then. One of his first ones, he didn't have Final Cut. They just bought. <laughs> but the big one that I heard of was uh, yeah, Blade Runner and Ridley's gone. What? What the hell? <laughs> yeah, it's that's not my not my version. And years later, he ended up releasing his own. version of it um but yeah like just finishing up as well uh some advice you could give to filmmakers starting out I mean you're given a lot of it already but um
1: I reckon just sort of a little bit uh, following the Rodriguez approach just see what what you've got access to and use that and formulate a story that you know you can make. It doesn't have, you know, 460 visual effects shots in it, but it might have, you know, depending on what the story is, say you want to do a, you know, a zombie film or you want to do something genre-related or science fiction, you know, you can still set it now and maybe, you know, you need a little bit of visual effects, I mean, you know, learn Premiere, learn After Effects, learn how to use a camera. D- don't be relying on people. Um, I mean Rodriguez says a great thing is a lot of technical people can't learn to be creative but if you're creative you can learn to be technical. Mm. So you can learn how to use the equipment and it just takes time and, and effort. And, you know, there's a lot of if you do know someone in, in the industry, you know, you can get access to a lot of professionals that are willing to, you know, help, you know, upcoming people or they might shoot something for you for a day. Um, You know, they might have access to a, you know, Alexa or a RED that, you know, might be a bit more than you've got access to. But I know people that have shot films on not even a 5D, on a 7D. Mm-hmm. And they look great. Or, or so.
0: Well, Shane Herbert shot. I think it was um, one of those. What, what was the action movie? Um, I forgot the name, but he filmed it on five D Mark Twos. Hmm. So pretty much the entire movie, and it yeah. looks like stunning.
1: What's the it. film called?
0: I think it's. Let's oh, tip of my tongue.
1: That's right. You can edit it in,
0: but uh, yeah, but uh, <laughs> I but, need IMDb so, with me. But
1: I want to um, and I I'm going to do it. Act I, of
0: valor. That's it. What is it? Act of valor. Active. Act of valor.
1: Oh, act of valor. Okay. Um, I speaking of a I just got a um, iPhone XS. I want to shoot a video clip on a XS.
0: And put it against the new iPhone 11 Pro
1: Max. Oh, no, just as an exercise, just to see yeah. how it comes out. It shoots 4K. It shoots slow motion at 240 frames. Um, but that's only 1080 or something. But it looks amazing. It would just be fun exercise to do. It would be certainly good enough for online. And that, that's an iPhone. Imagine, you know, how the phones going to be in another five years. And imagine you had like three or four... People with iPhone XSs, yeah. And you went out and, I mean, obviously you, you wouldn't. It'd be harder to do like a drama with it and shoot really good sound, but you could. There'd be ways around that. Um, but imagine you had f- four cameras, four iPhone XSs, and you were shooting your multicam, a car stunt or something. Mm. So I, I think getting back to your question with the advice is. Just have some big ideas and and sort of worry about the execution of it later. Um, don't forget about it, but sort of just come up with the ideas and and be, be grand and, and don't think, oh, you know, I have to do, you know, two people in a room talking for ninety minutes. Don't
0: limit yourself, essentially.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, because you can have a you can have a balance. You. You can have a drama, you know, have have a little bit of a car chase Mm. if if that's what you want to pick or you get some really good actors and do a real good drama piece, get a couple of lights,
0: smoke machine, it's
1: amazing what you can do.
0: I know, yeah. Um, And my last I think three quick questions, what's your favourite movie?
1: Oh, that's a hard one.
0: I love asking this question.
1: Don't know if it's my. F- well, one of my yeah, they have to be two thousand one.
0: Space Odyssey. Yeah. Wow. Um. That's timeless.
1: Yeah. I mean, Kubrick was pretty amazing, mm. but I I certainly don't have one. I mean, I love um, Seven.
0: Oh, Seven's great. Um. What's in the box? But, but
1: then I love <laughs> Double Indemnity and.
0: Yep. So, so you sort of pick your favorite movie from a different genre, that sort of thing, or
1: yeah, uh, there, it's nothing to do with genre. Because um, the good thing about Kubrick was that he never he was never locked down. But all of his films are different genres,
0: mm.
1: which that's would, what made him unique. Yeah, I mean, Paths of Glory is a war drama, and mm. Clockwork Orange is this futuristic, weird science fiction movie. Um, so he, he he was never bound. He was never bound by story or genre, which is another good piece of advice. Um, He also had a philosophy of, um, he'd always, he'd have this concept called uniqueness of story. So when he was researching what movie to make next, he would, he would have this sort of, um, this stream of questions in this, the, um, to determine whether the story he would want to do was unique. So he he would sort of qualify the story idea. So, for example, like he'd go, oh, okay, it's about a Captain America and oh, that's been done. So he would never do anything that was sort of, you know, too closely to what had been done, which is why all of his films are pretty unique. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I've... I've you know I like quirky eighties trashy exploitation movies and i mean you know and i think it a lot depends on your age and when you how old you are when you saw it um and the thing i you know i could watch i think I watch the thing every couple of months <laughs> so um can you memorize it yet um uh, quite a bit, yeah, but no, I certainly don't have one favorite movie mm. it's impossible.
0: Do you have a favourite actor or director that you've
1: worked with? Um, not so much of work with. I mean, yeah, everyone who we work with is usually pretty good. But, yeah, I mean, I like David Fincher and Kubrick and all the great directors that are gone, um, you know, and, and all for different
0: reasons as well. Um, yeah okay well thank you so much for spending time and (laughs) sharing your words of wisdom to us really appreciate it thank you so much no worries signing out thank you guys so much for tuning in to this week's episode with Paul Caddy I hope you guys really really got something out of it I know I did personally I really really enjoyed interviewing him and, and hearing his story where he came from and um, where he's going as well, the projects he's worked on, he, he did share a lot of insight into some of the projects and as well as film, like what it was like back in those days to to grow up and, you know, want to be a filmmaker, it was very different uh, back then to what it is now, you know, I mean, it's, it's a lot more accessible, but then again, it's very closed off um, and as we got to talking about the kind of industry that you don't really need to wait a great deal of time you don't really need to go to film school and and study you just go and out there and, and make a film you know go out there put everything on youtube vimeo uh, facebook even try and get your work seen by people you know and it's really as as much as the industry is about showing it to other people it's really about who you know and getting that Uh, seen by the right kinds of people. So networking. Networking is a very, very valuable tool and I'll be speaking about that a lot on this show, The Storybox. So be prepared for that as well. But um, if you do want to follow Paul and Nick, his business partner, you can do that on social media. I'll link everything for you in the notes below so you can have a look um, and just go straight to the pages for that give them a a like a shout out as well share their work they've had a couple of their projects actually go viral which is pretty incredible they've had the wolverine and house of hancock i believe with the fat face makeup silicon effects and um that was that was insane you know I, i helped i helped out doing some behind the scenes uh stuff like that but um yeah i mean go do that um i know they'll be very appreciative of it as well um and you know like they've been in the industry for 35 years so you know um absolutely incredible and hopefully i get to have them on the show later on because i know we're just touching the surface um in 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 that interview uh so anyway guys remember always to continue to share your story so don't uh keep it to yourself share it to others hopefully it might help them as well until next week guys don't forget to do that. Yeah. Enjoy your time, okay? That was a terrible outro. (laughs) I apologize. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.